there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! No album's had a greater influence on rock in the last half century than the Velvet Underground's debut. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Velvet Underground and Nico. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions, and Greg, we are going to blow out the entire next hour to discuss the Velvet Underground and Nico, the most important, most influential, and certainly a, a record that means more to us than any in rock history. No doubt, Jim. I think this is the most influential band in rock history, and uh, this is where it all starts for me in a lot of ways. Different album. Lou Reed sang this line years later on Loaded talking about Jenny, this mythical young girl on Long Island, discovering rock and roll, and her life mm. was saved by rock and roll. I feel that way about this album, The Velvet Underground and Nico. I know you do. And it's amazing that this record is now half a century, 50 years old. For those who don't know this record, we are going to make the case at the end of it about why they need it in their life as urgently today as they did in 1967. Who were the musicians that make this record? Lou Reed, uh, first and foremost, singer and songwriter. He is born in Brooklyn, but moves to Freeport, Long Island at age 11 with his quintessentially middle-class Jewish-American family. He's a troubled kid, Lou. You know, there were pictures of him playing sports in high school, kind of a standard upbringing, but he had wild mood swings. There was an interest in men. Uh, there was depression. His father, uh, in particular, subjected him to electroshock therapy, something Lou never got over, addresses it in the song later, Kill Your Sons. Comes out of Creedmoor State Psychiatric Hospital in 1959 and goes on to Syracuse University. Lou is enamored of the beat poets, and he develops a relationship with the poet Delmore Schwartz as his mentor. Delmore is up there in Syracuse, uh, famous for his 1937 short story in Dreams Begin Responsibilities, drinking himself to death and influencing Lou Reed. Uh, little known fact, Greg, Lou played records on college radio, <laughs> uh, an equal mix of Ornette Coleman, Cecil Taylor, and Don Cherry, and his R&B favorites, Hank Ballard and James Brown, with a little bit of doo-wop. I think that pretty much tells you where Lou is coming from. Up at Syracuse University, he meets one Sterling Morrison. Sterling's impressed by Lou Reed because he will take his guitar, uh, crank it up to 11, and blast out the window at the ROTC cadets <laughs> marching by below. Sterling says, I got to meet this guy. Uh, they're also friends with a guy named Jim Tucker. Jim has uh, a sister who you'll introduce in a minute named Maureen. It's really interesting. Lou Reed, uh, the Tuckers, 
and Sterling Morrison all grew up within about eight miles of each other mm -hmm. on Long Island. Okay, what was in the water producing these people? But that musical partnership begins between Sterling Morrison uh, as a great rhythm guitarist, sometimes lead, and Lou Reed, a man who said, you don't understand rock and roll if you have never picked up a guitar. Guitar was everything to Lou Reed. Absolutely, Jim. And the third member of this troika that is really the foundation of the Velvet Underground was John Cale. Now, he's the outlier in the group in a lot of ways. Three of the four members, original members of the Velvet Underground, were from the Northeast. And, uh, you know, that was the core of the band, New York City. Yeah. Here comes John Cale from Wales. Um, he is a classically trained musician. He uh, studied music in college, came to New York in the 60s, and started performing with something known as the Theater of Eternal Music sometimes later referred to as the Dream Syndicate. I always wanted a bed that could fly in the sky on starry nights, on cold starry nights when you laid snuggling in your bed and feeling sorry for all the cats that had to be out walking the city streets on such a cold night. There was just an interesting collection of characters. You had Cale joining Lamont Young, who was uh, one of the most famous experimenters in the 60s art scene, as well as a guy who fathomed himself as, as a drummer, Angus McLeese, Tony Conrad, a hugely respected violinist, Billy Name, who later fell in with the uh, Andy Warhol factory crowd in New York City, John Hassel, an artist who uh, worked with your friend, Ding, Brian Eno, uh, uh, later on see, down I, the road. I wasn't the first to bring him up, although we will. <laughs> but soon, Cale uh, was fascinated with this character, Lou Reed. Um, he told me when he first saw Lou Reed uh, working out his music, he was really impressed with Lou's ability to improvise lyrics atop of almost anything, come up with really uh, dynamic, provocative, bold street scenarios, painting these narratives of New York City street life, unlike anything he'd ever heard or seen in the music sphere, certainly pop music, but was coming straight out of literature, people like Bukowski and Nelson Algren. Hubert Selby Jr. These kind of, you know, kind of brutally honest writers. Hearing that coming out of Lou Reed's uh, mouth made him want to work with the guy. So here, here is these three guys uh, hold up working on music together: Lou Reed, Sterling Morrison, and and John Cale. I'm waiting for the man. Take three. <laughs> Oh, 
All we need is a drummer, right? McLeese is the first guy who's brought in as a drummer. I, I, I He's an obvious choice. You know, it, it must be said, I edited a book about the Velvet Underground. You have been studying your whole life, as I have. Uh, many of these stories are apocryphal, but this one is repeated so often, I think it must be true. Angus McLeese was such a hippie, he didn't like the idea of being told <laughs> when to start to play and when to finish. So they get a gig. In, of all places, Summit High School, Summit, New Jersey. Right. They have to play. They're getting paid to play. He also didn't like being paid to play. This was art, man. Yeah. Uh, so he doesn't, he, he, he bows out. They turn to Jim Tucker, their buddies. And you know anybody who plays drums? My sister, Maureen. Yeah. Maureen Tucker uh, grew up in Long Island. And, and as you said, her older brother was a friend of Sterling's. Uh, she was the, you know, we, we need a drummer. Who can we get? Well, Sterling's friend plays drums. Let's get her in the band. Now, here's this essentially untrained drummer, with quote marks around untrained. Maureen was fascinated by drums from an early age, and here's this kid growing up on Long Island, and her two main influences on banging pots and pans and yes. whatever whatever she can get her hands on are Babatunde Olatunji, the great yes. African drummer. He put out a very famous... Uh, percussion record in the early 60s that influenced scads of people around the world. Well, and there was one of these cultural efforts to right. bring him here to play in America, and she went around her high school with the coffee can collecting <laughs> money. To, so she wanted to hear her hero, this drummer. Absolutely. And the other influence, Bo Diddley. You know, mm-hmm. the Bo Diddley beat. <laughs> you know, rhythm, rhythm, rhythm uh, was her life, and... and, and Untrained, but certainly playing air drums and real, real drums in her bedroom, wherever she could find a, a hard surface to bang on. Not, not uh, all stunning drums. Drums, though, Greg. Yes. It must be said. She turned a bass drum on its side and stood playing it with mallets. Sometimes a floor tom on very special occasions a snare drum, but none of the traditional kit instruments. All of the tom heavy bass-heavy uh, bottom groove. And, and cymbals were just uh, verboten. Like, no, well, no, I don't, no. need no, no. don't need those. Don't need those. So a very odd-looking lineup of, of people here. You know, you've had, you had these kind of arty guys up front, and then you had Maureen, who was sort of regarded, again, quote marks, the primitive in the group. Well, she, she looks like a Peanuts character, yeah. essentially, when you see those photos. And it must be said, she never gets enough credit. Mm-hmm. There are beginning to be, in 1967, when the Velvets released their first album, some women in rock, in influential roles, uh, you know, Jefferson Airplane, uh, Grace Slick, okay? But nobody playing an instrument. Maureen Tucker is really the first serious instrumentalist in a rock band. And, and, and Lou Reed recognized that special quality from the start. Um, there was no condescension at all. As soon as he saw Maureen and what she was trying to do, he was in love with her as, as a musician. He said there are two kinds of drummers. There's Maureen Tucker and there's everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken with love. What happens to this band of misfits? Uh, how do they get from Summit High School to the, the nexus of cool in the art universe in the mid-'60s? Um, they get a gig at a place called the Cafe Bazaar. This is not a cool Greenwich Village place. This is a tourist trap where tourists come along and they want to hear beatnik music, uh, weird music in Greenwich Village. Well, the Velvet Underground are playing a stint there. They're way weirder than anybody bargained for. They play uh, the Black Angel's death song.
says, you play that again and you're fired, so they play it again and louder. They're fired. But in the crowd, apocryphally perhaps, but so the story goes. That night are two members of Andy Warhol's factory crowd. One of them's Billy Name. Um, he introduces them to Warhol. Who is Andy Warhol? in 1966. Greg, it can't be understated. He is the center of the art universe. This is the moment of pop art. He is at the height of his powers. What is pop art? I think if, you know, Warhol wrote an excellent book uh, about it called Popism, but I think if we have to distill it to one sentence, Andy said, the pop idea was that anybody could do anything. So naturally, we were all trying to do it all. (laughs) All right? So he's making movies. He's cultivating what he calls superstars, Edie Sedgwick, uh, people like that, Candy Darling. Um, you know, uh, and, 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 and coalescing this group of, of talented misfits in this silver foil lined loft in New York City and the Velvets fit right into that. When he takes them on as the musical act he will present in the same way that he would present his, his uh, lithographs or his films, um, it instantly says one thing. This is capital A art, right? And this is where the notion, now nobody said this, Sgt. Pepper's is several months away when the Velvets, actually more than a year away, Mm -hmm. when the Velvets begin recording. This notion that rock can be art and not just teenage juvenilia, this is new. Having Warhol as your sponsor is serious. Right, absolutely. I mean, you've got to consider the context of what's happening in the rock world when uh, eventually the first Velvet Underground record is released in 1967, the Velvet Underground and Nico. That was released in March of 1967. You uh, point out that they were were recording this record uh, a year ahead of that release date. Uh, when this record comes out, what is the context? I mean, we're the, we are on the doorstep of the summer of love. West Coast psychedelia is ascendant. Flower power, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We're going to change the world, kids. San Francisco, <laughs> not New York. Uh, yes. Maybe London. Those are the centers of the world, not New York. Velvets were not in step with any of this. The Velvets hated psychedelics. They didn't like to drop acid. They were they were into harder drugs than that. They were into speed and they yeah. were into heroin. We'll and, talk you know, about both. And, and, and I, they, they looked askance at the idea that taking psychedelics was sort of painted under this picture of a spiritual experience. Man, we're gonna we're gonna see new things and we're gonna create music under its influence. They they were really skeptical, cynical. Uh, about that whole notion. They saw and wrote about reality. They wanted to rub the audience's noses in it. Uh, Andy Warhol sort of put it best, uh, you know, instead of uh, leave them wanting more, it was always yeah, oh, leave them wanting, leave them wanting less. less. There's one more ingredient we have to add. Andy Warhol, uh, the role of him in producing this record, aside from putting his name on the Velvets and uh, designing the cover art, the famous banana, which comes with a sticker, peel slowly and see, mm-hmm. um, it says to the Velvets, I think you should meet this woman, Krista Fafkin, uh, but she's known as Nico. Born quite possibly in Cologne, maybe uh, in the years before World War II, all of these facts are very mysterious. She's one of Europe's beautiful people, Greg, an actress, a model. She's in a Fellini film. It's only natural that she'll eventually make her way to New York. She's already recorded by the time uh, she makes her way to New York, a, a single produced by Jimmy Page 
for Andrew Luke Oldham's, the, the guy from the Rolling Stones, his label. Uh, Warhol says, I really think you should have this woman, you know, because the Velvets at this point are like, Andy's going to pay for our recording sessions, and he's Andy Warhol. Mm -hmm. Okay, they acquiesce. They're not happy about this. Neither Reed nor Kale, though both will have romantic entanglements with Nico. Uh, So Nico's added to the mix, singing a few songs. The pieces are in place. They begin recording in 1966. Yeah, the recording session uh, was financed by Warhol, so right away... He was getting them to places that they might not otherwise have been able to get with their own devices. So they record a, a bunch of tracks that would end up on the Velvet Underground and Nico a year later for less than three thousand uh, bucks. It's a it's a crappy studio to put it politely. <laughs> this is yes. not a very nice studio in New York. It's 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 well past its prime, not cutting edge. So you have to sort of hear the songs through the haze of the re- of the non recording budget. Um, Col- Columbia rejects the record. Atlantic, Elektra, Amit Erdogan uh, declines the record specifically because he sees a song called Heroin on the track list. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to release that record. No way, no how. Well, it's not a I don't do drug move. songs. It's yeah. not a commercial move. Exactly. Finally, MGM Records-owned Verve Records accepts the recordings with the help of somebody on the Verve staff by the name of Tom Wilson. And Jim, I think Tom Wilson's role in the early development of the of the Velvets was hugely important. I mean, here's a guy who had worked with Dylan, the Mothers of Invention, Cecil Taylor, Simon and Garfunkel. This guy, this guy had worked with a lot of the greats in that era, and he heard greatness in the Velvet Underground. He says, "No, I want to go to bat for this band. We should sign them. We should put this record out." So he re-records a, a, a couple of tracks uh, a month later in Hollywood, May of uh, May of '66. I'm waiting for the man, Venus and Furs, heroin. The record's still not ready. They go back into the studio yet again in November to record a final track, adding Sunday Morning to the mix. That ends up becoming that, the first single. That's going to be the hit single. Right. They're that's gonna the, say, that's the you need a single, boys, you know? Yeah, let's, you know. Let's get this out. Sunday morning. It doesn't happen. When the album comes out, Greg, it, uh, it, it spends one week at number 199 right. on the Billboard Top 200 chart and then disappears. After a break, we're going to dig into the songs that make up the Velvet Underground and Nico, including more about Sunday Morning. We'll also talk about the lasting impact of the album. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are doing a show-length classic album dissection of the Velvet Underground and Nico on the occasion of it being, and this blows my mind, Greg, 50 years old, Mm. half a century of brilliance. Didn't sell that way, though. The album comes out uh, and spends exactly one week at number 199 (laughs) on Billboard's Top 200 Albums chart, and then it disappears. Uh, I've made it this far without bringing up the famous quote by Brian Eno, rock philosopher and genius, I think. He said, you know, the Velvet Underground never sold a lot of records in its time, but everyone who bought one went out and started a band. I think Eno's lying a little bit because some of the people who went out and bought one went and became rock critics, (laughs) all right? One of those rock critics was another personal hero of mine, I'm sorry, Lester Bangs. Lester said, all modern music begins with the Velvet Underground. Those are audacious words, both from Eno and from Lester. What were they talking about? I think the only way to get at uh, the importance of this music is to start getting into the songs on the album uh, and, and take them on one by one. Some of them would you know, roughly be categorized as, as pop songs or rock songs, fairly typical songs. And some of them are very experimental art noise songs. You look at side one of this record, and, you know, right away they hit you with uh, three amazing tracks. I mean, every, every track on this record deserves some attention, but we mentioned Sunday Morning as being the last track that was recorded for the record, and it's the first one up when, when the record is released, Sunday Morning, the single, quote-unquote. It is a deceptively pop-sounding song. Originally, Nico was supposed to sing it. Lou Reed ends up singing it on the album. John Cale adding a Celesta part on it that's kind of that twinkling sound. Yeah. It, it sounds very pop, very dreamy. It sounds it's a pop in the way that Pet Sounds, right. recorded in 1966, was pop. Sound. It's just a restless feeling by my side. Early dawning. Kind of a, a, a dreamy, atmospheric sounding song, but then you pay attention to the lyrics and they're saying, Watch out, the world's behind you, there's always someone watching you. I've got a feeling I don't want to know. This is about as a paranoid a song as you could possibly imagine. Watch out, the world's behind you There's always someone around you who will come It's nothing at all And in some ways, I think of this, Jim, as uh, the beginning point of the record in the same way that a, a movie like Citizen Kane or The Usual Suspects ends up with, you know, the final scene in the movie, and it's all told in flashback. Like, this is Sunday morning. You should have seen what happened Saturday night to me. (laughs) Well, it does beg the question, what happened Saturday night? Exactly, and I think that's what the rest of the record is about in a lot of ways. Uh, It's basically a a wayward 
uh, weekend uh, in New York City. Dante uh, had Beatrice lead him through the circles of hell, <laughs> and Lou and John Cale are about to lead us through New York City, circa 66. Now, you and I both love I'm Waiting for the Man, the next song on the record. I think this was originally expected to lead off the record. It's all about that beat. We, we mentioned Maureen Tucker's stellar drumming, that upturned bass drum, Cale's piano, Sterling Morrison's rhythm guitar, uh, it is all about that driving, driving beat in this song. And then the scenario that Lou Reed paints with the lyrics, the drug trade rendered almost as a dark comedy. Matter of fact. I'm waiting for my man. 26 dollars in my hand. Up to Lexington, one, two, five. Sick and dirty more than alive. I'm waiting for my man. He's waiting for his drug dealer, and he's in Harlem, a part of town that he probably shouldn't be in at that hour of the day. Hey, white boy, what you doing uptown? Hey, white boy, you chasing all women around? At the same time, you've got this driving, Bo Diddley-style uh, beat underneath it. It's a rock and roll song with a scenario that hasn't been heard in rock and roll with songs With some before. hidden sophistication, because Kale playing that piano in, in the sort of monochromatic, very insistent way uh, is Philip Glass. It's minimalism. Mm-hmm. It's what's happening in the classical avant-garde. Right. Uh, also, it has to be said, I think, uh, the most startling evocation of a junkie looking for his fix outside of Hubert Selby Jr.'s Last Exit to Brooklyn or William S. Burroughs' Junkie. And Reed referenced both of those books. Mm -hmm. You know, next up you have Femme Fatale, and we finally hear Nico's voice front and center. This is one of Andy Warhol's numerous song suggestions to Lou Reed. And Lou, to his credit, listened to Andy. You know, he said, why don't you write a song about paranoia? And that becomes Sunday Morning. Why don't you write a song about Warhol superstar Edie Sedgwick? Uh, that's what Femme Fatale becomes. And Nico is the perfect uh, singer for this song, the ice queen of the group, uh, singing a song about this unknowable female superstar, this Warhol creation with this vulnerability underneath. Here she comes You better watch your step She's gone to break your heart in two song. In some ways, I think, Jim, 
you know, if you look at this record, that this may be the single most famous song. You know, one, the one song that maybe everybody knows. R.E.M. would cover yeah. it later. Many people, Patti Smith would cover it. My favorite line was written at the time. Pioneering rock critic Richard Goldstein in The Village Voice described Nico as half goddess, half icicle, and wrote, <laughs> she sings in perfect mellow ovals. It sounds something like a cello waking up in the morning. Isn't that perfect? Yeah. You That's know, exactly what she is. And it needs to be said, even though there was this initial uh, iciness between Nico and the rest of the band as someone who was imposed upon them by Andy Warhol, they ended up kind of digging uh, what she brought to the band. There was yeah. a sound and a sensibility that she brought that really kind of completed the band in many ways. Well, Nico's got three songs on this album, and then she's gone from the Velvet story, but both Kale and Reed would work with her in the future mm-hmm. on her solo albums. That brings us to some of the noise art songs, for lack of better terms, on side one, Greg. Venus and Furs. Okay, this is where the Velvet Underground gets its name. <laughs> There's a, a novel, a tawdry, dime store, quickie, uh, a tacky novel you'd feel uh, rather dirty carrying by the name of the Velvet Underground. And it's drawing on these practices of sadomasochism, bondage, submission. How Lou came to know about these things, I don't know. Maybe he was just <laughs> observing at the, uh, at the factory. Um, this is something no one ever had written about before. Uh, there's no intro to this song, no build-up. It starts in the middle, as if you have wandered into this underground dungeon or opium den, and then maybe you make it out, maybe you don't. Mm-hmm. I guess you do, because eventually there's a Sunday morning. But Venus and Furs is a dark, dark song. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather With flash girl child And we're only starting the darker, artier material. Run, run, run. On its surface is a simple rock song, except with all the elements removed. You were beginning to get to this uh, with Waiting for the Man. I think Waiting for the Man and Run, Run, Run structurally have more to do with hip-hop than they do Mm. with rock and roll in many ways because it's reducing everything to the rhythm first and foremost. Everything secondary. Vocals, any rudimentary melody, it's all about the primacy of the rhythm. And to me, I've always thought Run, Run, Run is the sound of the subways in New York City running underground.
Meanwhile, Lou is continuing this fascination with beat poetry in introducing us to this cast of characters, fancifully named, very beat, Teenage Mary, Margarita Passion, Seasick Sarah, Beadless Harry. They're all trying to score drugs. Mm -hmm. They got to run, run, run. Take a track or two. Seasick Sarah had a golden nose, hot nail boots, wrapped around her toes. When she turned blue, all the angels screamed. They didn't know. They couldn't make a scene. She had to run, 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 run. Take a dagger too. Run, 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 run. Jibs are dead to do. Tell you what to do. It's a fascinating song. Simple, uh, a rudimentary art sketch. Minimalist. And then you have All Tomorrow's Parties. I think in a lot of ways, people wrongly see this as a portrait of the craziness at the Warhol factory. In fact, Reed had written it years before. We didn't talk about Reed and Kale's first experiences as musicians. Lou Reed begins working at, you know, a third rank, wannabe brill building, label and songwriting house called Pickwick Records. And somehow Kale winds up there. That's how those two come Mm -hmm. together. They write a song called The Ostrich. Ostrich feathers are big in fashion in 1965. Reed reads this in Vogue or whatever, writes a song about it called Through the Ostrich. It's this dance, stick your head in the ground and (laughs) stomp on it. up with a tuning later he would call the ostrich tuning every string is tuned to the same note so it's this dissonant droning instrument of course kale is well versed in what's being done with drones in the classical avant-garde angus mcleese had introduced to them what was being done with drones for centuries in eastern mystical music lou has brought it to rock and roll with ostrich guitar all tomorrow's parties is a drone ain't really no song there Mm. it's just a drone about uh, a party that you probably would consider yourself lucky to have survived and may not have wanted to go to at all. <laughs> and what And we want to hear your opinion of the Velvet Underground and Nico. What was your reaction the first time you heard it? Leave us a message for the air on our hotline, 888-859-1800. After a short break, we'll continue our classic album dissection with side two of the record. Plus, we'll look at the legacy the album has had on modern rock. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. 
Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. We have got our professor's hats on (laughs) doing a a deep dissection of what we consider probably the greatest rock album of all time, The Velvet Underground and Nico, 50 years ago, Greg, released. Uh, Unbelievable. Can I give you one more Lester Bangs quote before we get to side two? Oh, I suppose so. Why was this band so important? Lester said early on when the first album came out, Everybody assumes that mind and body are opposed. Apollonian, Dionysian, mm-hmm, right? right? It, it, leaving aside 6,000 years of history, this whole trog versus cerebrite thing is so boring. Still, we buy it. All of us do. The Velvet Underground were the greatest band that ever existed because they began to suggest such was not the mm-hmm. case. In other words, this was incredibly smart music that made you think, but it also made you feel physically and want to abandon all thought. Greg, let's get into side two of The Velvet Underground and Nico. It starts with There She Goes Again. It's one of the album's pop songs. I've said there's two kinds of songs, basically, pop songs and art noise songs. This is probably the catchiest song on the album. It's later covered by R.E.M. Many other groups have have taken a shot at it. Uh, Musically, it's pretty simple. It rips off the riff and rhythm of Marvin Gaye's Hitchhike. I think the thing that's really interesting here is the juxtaposition between this fairly catchy and straightforward musically song and, and some very strange lyrics. Now take a look. There's no tears in her eyes. Like a bird, you know she would fly. What can you do? You see her walking on down the street. Look at all your friends that she's going to meet. You better hit her. Okay, from the minute I've discovered this album and every time I've listened countless times since, um, that hits me in the face. Mm -hmm. That song hits me in the face the way Reed is singing, You Better Hit Her. And I have never been able to answer for myself, um, is he playing a character? Is this a junkie on the street slapping around a woman? I don't know what's going on, but that juxtaposition of this catchy Motown ditty and this disturbing lyric never fails to to get some emotion out of me. There she goes again. She's out on the streets again. She's down on her knees, my friend. But you know she'll never ask you please again. Well, 
how, how do you deal with it? I, I think when you're, you know, you're looking at a movie with a, a villainous character as kind of the hero or the or the main character in the movie, it, it, it's the same way that a lot of this album is, Jim. I think there's a sense of he's portraying some not-so-nice people at the center of this record and trying to humanize them, but not hiding from the fact that they do some really heinous things, some really awful things in their life, and he's portraying them for what they are, trying he's to not give a full them. portrait. Not forgiving them and not excusing them. They hate themselves in many ways for what they've done. They don't understand themselves. They, they can no longer think or see clearly. And here comes this voice saying, you know what, I understand you, I know that you're, you know, you feel terrible about what you've done, but there's a beauty inside you that I think one day you're, you're going to find it. Let me be your mirror. I be your mirror, reflect what you are, in case you don't know. I be the wind, the rain and the sunset, the light on your door, to show that you're home. When you think the night has in your mind, that inside you twisted and unkind Let me stand to show that you are blind Please put down your hands Cause I see you Lester Banks quote number three Lou Reed's charm was that he expressed a great amount of empathy for people in mm-hmm. society about whom no one else cared. Exactly. They, these were the people who were the forgotten ones in, in New York City and in the world by extension. Uh, Lou Reed wrote about them. He heard those voices in literature, but you couldn't find them in rock and roll. He was devoting an entire record, basically his entire early recording career, to documenting their experience and their lives. And you'll see this done much more simply and I'd say less effectively later in his biggest hit, Walk on the Wild Side. Mm -hmm. It's just him looking around at the freaks at the Warhol factory. Freaks is a word he would have used. I'm not saying that. And and cataloging what they're doing. But he does it much more effectively on the Velvets record. Well, Jim, I think if there is a song uh, that I consider, like, if I had to say to somebody, what is the Velvet Underground, this is the song, it would be heroin. This is basically a song about chronicling a junkie's heroin habit in novelistic detail. The ebb and flow arrangement that goes with that, it is not a traditional pop song by any measure. It's built around Maureen Tucker's drumming. Again, that symbol-free approach to, to the drums. You see how the beat, the beat rises and falls to match the emotions in the song. You know, we should mention Kale's viola. Oh, man. Um, that he was a, a master on, a virtuoso viola player. You can hear it all over Venus and Furs. You can hear it again on heroin. It adds that drone, that element of haunted otherness. I don't know. Just where I'm going But I'm Gonna try For the kingdom If I can Cause it makes me feel like I'm a man When I put a spike into my vein 
And what Lou is singing about over this amazing backdrop, he's singing about self-nullification. And he's not having any regrets about it. It's this very deadpan, flat voice. He's not judging this person. He's not saying they're wrong or they're right. He's describing what they're doing, and he's trying to explain why they're doing it. And what you hear as you listen to the song multiple times is that you realize, okay, you know, that, okay, oh, wow, he's singing about some guy shooting up. Mm-hmm. And what, what he's really saying is, this guy has been driven to such a point in his life that he's going to do something horrible. And he'd rather do it to himself than to the people around him. He's embracing the voice. If he wasn't shooting heroin, he would be killing people in the streets right now because he is so fed up. It's my life, it's my wife. I mean, what would drive you to the point where this drug becomes your reason to exist? Well, he tells us, when he's rushing on his run, he feels just like Jesus' son. Right, and in the midst of this, he's talking about all the politicians making crazy sounds and all the dead bodies piled up in mounds. You know, a lot of people said the Velvets didn't make a political album. That's one of the reasons they didn't resonate in 1967. There's a lot of political content, commentary in this record. New York is a cesspool. In a few years, the president will say, as according to the Daily News headline, New York, if Ford the city, drop dead. All right. And and the Vietnam War is raging. Obliteration seems like a good choice. I would just add to that that I think the way the song ebbs and flows... I have not done heroin, okay, mm-hmm. uh, mimics that particular trip. Patti Smith wrote movingly about the idea of heroin consciousness. You don't have to do this drug to feel as if you've done it. Right. To listen to this velvet song. Right. On a great ship Going from this land here to that On a sailor's suit and cap Greg, we're going to uh, up the noise question now. we got to talk about the Black Angels' death song and European Sun. To me, they're both of a piece. This is Kale Ascendant. Tom Wilson's given a lot of credit for the sound of the Velvets. Andy Warhol's name is on the cover. All the other members of the Velvets, Morrison, Tucker, and Reed even, would say, really, the first album is John Cale. Mm-hmm. His sounds, the viola, that combination of high art, avant-garde classical, low art, rock and roll... What are these songs about? I have no freaking idea. <laughs> what is happening musically? Pure chaos. Cut mouth bleeding, raises forget in the pain, antiseptic remains crew goodbye. So you fly. To the cozy brown snow of the east Garnet shoes, choose again 
they will take it even further with Sister Ray on White Light, White Heat. But these are two eruptions of furious noise. And I think uh, European Sun illustrates that best when uh, Kale at one point drags a metal folding chair along the concrete floor of the recording studio and then breaks a glass mm-hmm. with it. And it's like, wow, that sounds great. <laughs> And that's the kind of fury that's erupting in these two, you know, noise explosions. There is no noise rock, no sonic youth, no nobody, no Melvins, no, you know, nastier moments on on In Utero by Nirvana. All of it starts here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, the fact that they were able to go there uh, on a record and and sort of you know break the studio in the process of making yeah. these songs—a record that also includes Sunday Morning. Yes, uh, I mean the extremes are just stunning. To me, the legacy of this record is in that variety, the range that this band displayed, with a minimum of instruments and a minimum of fussiness. Um, just basically a band playing in the studio in a very unique. Uh, way that defined only themselves. I mean, when you think about what was happening in the youth culture at that time, I think they saw it all as a grand marketing scam, and they were an opposition party of four. Any youth culture movement, they didn't want any part of it. You know, they just didn't want to be part of it. They were the original outsiders. Very appealing idea in punk, post-punk, alternative, whatever you want to call it, underground music, but it didn't come to fruition for another 10 years before people kind of realized, hey, these records are amazing. And it must be said, uh, somewhat self-servingly, largely because rock critics kept saying, this was important (laughs) and maybe you missed it, you should catch up. How do we even begin to try to sum up the legacy of this recording? You have entire bands that gave us 20 album canons that are all wonderful that came from one song right. on this Velvet's record. Yeah. If you look at each song on the Velvet Underground's debut album, Jim, you can measure entire genres being created by an individual song on that record. Not just bands, but entire genres. Yeah. Uh, like of a song like Sunday Morning leading to this modern context of bands like Granddaddy and Radiohead. Sort of modern art rock crossed with a pop sensibility. Uh, What about goth? Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about a song like... uh, Venus and Furs, All Tomorrow's Parties. I mean, Susie and the Banshees, right? Nick Cave. I mean, straight out of that stuff. Punk rock, run, run, run. The Ramones... Straight line back to Run, 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 right? Yeah, it was 50s 50s rock, girls group, and Velvets were the Ramones. And heroin, I think uh, we've got a lot of context for a song like that. Because I mean, I, to my vein, needs to a center. 
shoegaze, you know, spiritualized, and Spaceman 3, this idea of evoking the out-of-body, uh, transcendent voyage somewhere else mm-hmm. with music. Angels death song, European Sun. There is no noise rock, all right, without <laughs> those songs. Sonic Youth, they're the first to say it. The Melvins and countless other bands that just love racket. And at the opposite end of the spectrum, I'll be your mirror. Slowcore is born then and there. Galaxy 500. Low Mm -hmm. comes from a song like that. I mean, the the number of bands, I think there isn't a single punk, post-punk, underground band of the last 40, 50 years that uses guitar, bass, and drums in in any kind of uh, configuration that you can name that doesn't have a toe in the water of what the Velvets created on their, certainly their four studio albums, but in particular the first one, which was kind of the blueprint for everything that came after. This is the blueprint for modern rock. So Lester, Uh, are you going to say, are you going to give me the satisfaction of saying it, Lester Banks was right? He said all modern music begins yeah, with the Velvet I mean, Underground. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people who love the Beatles and other great bands from that era. The Beatles clearly had an amazing currency at the time. But I think if you stack up the last 50 years and look at who's influenced more bands, more kids to pick up guitars and play in their garage and make a certain kind of sound, I'd point it back to the Velvets. Well, all I, those kids making noise in their garage yeah. and basements and those yeah. punk shows... Those are all children of the Velvet Underground, whether they know it or not. That wraps up our classic album dissection of the Velvet Underground and Nico. But we really want to hear from you. What do you think the influence of the Velvets is? Leave us a message for the air on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we got on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to talk about fictional bands. Sometimes when the artists are fake, the music is very real and often very good. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banasak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Josh calling from Los Angeles. I really appreciated your appreciation of Jonathan Demi. I've been in mourning the past couple of days. I've been watching Stop Making Sense clips nonstop. That movie changed my life when I was 12. It's still changing my life when I'm 45. And uh, just when I thought I was becoming an old curmudgeon saying, ah, they don't make movies like that anymore, last night I caught up with 20th Century Women, that great Mike Mills film from last year with Annette Bening, uh, about a 15-year-old kid growing up in 1979. And that movie's got Jonathan Demme's fingerprints all over it, especially the music. Uh, At one point, the kid gets beaten up by a bully because he's wearing a Talking Head 77 t-shirt. 
and then there's a great scene with him and Greta Gerwig dancing to more songs about buildings and food in their bedroom. And uh, boy, that was me <laughs> almost at the exact same time in my life, almost the same time period. So it's great to know that, that Demi might have passed, but uh, his influence is still going strong, um, bringing music and movies together in a really transcendent way. Thanks for the tribute. Thanks for the show. Bye. Gentlemen, hello. This is uh, Steve from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I was just listening to your great segment on iconic guitar riffs. I wanted to mention that your segment highlighted both um, Led Zeppelin's The Ocean and The Stones' Can't Hear Me Knocking. And I'd like to mention a riff that I think fits right between those two, 1988's Cult of Personality by The Living Color. The riff is uh, similar to the ones we mentioned in its simple, its signature, sets the foundation for some of the great frenetic solo work that the underappreciated Vernon Reed uh, throws on top of it. Uh, still one of my go-to late 80s riffs, and uh, again, I think it fits right there with many of them that you highlighted on your episode. Great work, guys. Thanks again. found y'all shows listening to the greatest riffs of all time and I gotta show some love to folk musicians the folk musicians are killing it uh, with greatest all time it my favorites including Ani DeFranco with Gray and Joni Mitchell with Case of You so I'd love to hear some folk music uh, some folk writers and songwriters with great acoustic riffs uh, on the next show you guys rock alright later in a blue TV screen light I drew a map of Canada Oh, Canada Hey, this is Adam from Chicago and I just wanted to call in uh, to give you one of my favorite guitar riffs of all time. And this is from a band that many of your listeners might not have heard of before, but a band so influential to the likes of, of Jack White and Jay Retard. And it's the sort of garage rock band out of Memphis, Tennessee called Oblivion, and the song I want to focus on is The Leather off their popular favorites album. And it, to me, it's really the quintessential garage rock riff because it's, it's obviously very cool and very catchy as garage rock should be, but it's a little bit dirty, and it's a little bit slimy, um, and I think it's really cool uh, to listen to the development of garage rock in the 90s and see how these crazy, really dirty riffs develop into what we see later in the white stripes in Jay Retard and his various bands. Thanks. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions, from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.